0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fairfax Church. We are so glad you're here, and hello to everyone watching us online and everybody watching us uh, this morning over in the hangar. Um, My name is Kyle, if you don't know me, and I'm up here for a few minutes because this is um, an incredibly special weekend here at the church. This weekend, we are celebrating Rod's 35th year as our senior pastor. (laughs) Um, it was a bold experiment at the time when we recruited him out of preschool, Um, but it's all worked out. Um, it's really worked out really well. Um, first thing we want to do this morning is um, so many of you wanted to just say a kind word um, or a thanks to Rod that we, we asked uh, you guys to just record a little video on that. So we've got, there's so many folks that we did two different videos, one for this service, one for the next. So um, Rod just want you to see this first. So check out this video um, of just um, us trying to say thank you for your 35 years of service to this church. So watch this, check this out.
1: Hey Rod, happy anniversary. Thank you for all that you do. We love you and we hope that you have a fantastic day.
0: Thanks Pastor Rod for all the things that you've done for me and my family and just how you've worked in our lives and just all of the great things that you've instilled in us and taught us and thank you for all the laughs and just every day that we hear you in your your sermon and we just are so thankful for everything that you've taught us over the years. Rod, I'd just like to say uh, my wife and I have been coming here almost two years. It's been an incredible blessing, and uh, we feel great part of this church, and you're the great part of it. 35 years, it's amazing. Congratulations. And we're just glad to be part of this community and this church and this outreach, and we hope you have 35 more. God's blessing to you and your family and all that you do. Hey, Rod, uh, just want to say thank you for your devotion for 35 years and uh, just your faithfulness it's been such a joy for me to get to know you to be a part of the advisory council to just just see how God has worked here and it's
1: such a um, huge part of my life to be to be an impact here with you and and I just want to say thank you and we're two-thirds away from your 50-year plan and I'm excited to, to keep rocking so thank you
0: Hey, Pastor Rod. Just thank you so much for your heart and for your love for people and just for just all, all that you are. And I thank you especially for the past couple of years and how you've persevered through some really hard stuff. Um, so thank you so much, and we love you. Thanks, Pastor Rod. All right. See you, buddy. Pastor
1: Rod, we're so excited. Thirty-five years! Oh my God, that's a big number. We joined your church three years ago, and we're so blessed. There is so many times that you have talked the word of God that just made my heart be better. We're just so excited, and we want to say
0: gracias, guys. Nice. Thank, Thank you. you. We love you.
1: Many blessings.
0: Many blessings. Thank you so much, Rod, for all the work and all of the love that you shared to this place. I'm so happy to have known you, to have uh, learned from you. 35 years, that's amazing. I hope there's many more to come. Hi, Pastor Rod. We just want to thank you very much for being our pastor for over 20 years, and you've baptized all six of us. So we want to say
1: thank, thank you. you.
0: I, I could be bad. Um, My name's Sophia, Um, and uh, thank you, Um, and um, I can't wait to be baptized. I'm done. Pastor Otto, we wanted to say thank you. We are so grateful for the dedication and the love you show this church family. Uh, We've been coming for a couple years now, and we just know how much you mean to everybody here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pastor Rod. We love you. Thank you for your 35 years of service. Thank you for being my awesome worship dance partner. Thank you for all the ministry you've done and all the things we get to serve in. (laughs) Wow. Folks, will you join me in welcoming Pastor Rod uh, up this morning? So, another 35? Another 35? 35.
1: Another 35. Uh, no, no way.
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, I would be remiss in this moment if I did not um, uh, also point out your rock <laughs> for the 35 years here and beyond, but Donna Stafford. Um, hello, Donna. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to say um, on behalf of everybody and, of course, our staff and everyone, um, thanks mm-hmm. for um, 35 years of friendship, um, of leadership, <laughs> and of guidance, not only personally to me, um, but <laughs> Sorry. Um, but just um, leading this congregation into a place that um, loves God and loves people and um, We're all grateful for it, and we're looking forward to the next 35, 45, (laughs) 55 years, whatever it is, but um, thanks so much, and I love you.
1: Wow, love you. Thank you. Wow. Let's close in prayer. Wow. Um, That's not fair. Yeah, thank you. So my uh, colleagues asked me, how how do you stay at a church for 35 years? And uh, one is that you have to be 120 years old. And... uh, That's the first thing, but uh, the more important things is uh, you have to have an amazing staff. And uh, I have been blessed over 35 years to uh, uh, just work with some of the most amazing uh, people and the team that we have here now is just incredible. Uh, People who love Jesus, people who are super uber gifted and talented and passionate and want to use their gifts to advance the kingdom when they could use their gifts in so many other places and culture, and and um, it's just such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to work with uh, the team that we have, and and uh, Kyle and I have worked you know together for a good portion of that 35 years, which is such a special relationship, and have so many others on our staff have been with us a long time, and then folks that have come on just recently. Um, who just um, make our staff just better and better and better, and I'm just so thankful for that. And and you just have to have an incredible group of people that you lead, and uh, this congregation is just amazing. And I I, um, I really can't express it enough. You're just so, you've been so forgiving, so gracious, so loving, so kind, so patient, with, um, sometimes with decisions that maybe weren't the decisions that you would make, and yet it's just been such, there's just such a spirit of graciousness in this congregation that is not present in many other churches sometimes, unfortunately, and uh, has allowed us to navigate through so many challenging times, and that's because of your graciousness and your love for the Lord, and so thank you for that. And then like Kyle mentioned, You know, it's the people around you that allow you to do something like this a long time, and the person who has walked with me through these 35 years has been my wife, Donna, and uh, would you show your appreciation again for her? Uh, She didn't really sign up for this, but uh, this has been a part of our journey uh, together. And uh, it's been a really incredible 35 years. So honey, thank you so much for your support and love and uh, involvement in, uh, in this and in my life. And my wife is an introvert, so this is maybe the worst moment of her life right now. But uh, you can't get away from it, hon. We love you a lot and are so thankful for you. All right, um, so we're starting a new series this weekend. It's this eight-week series. Uh, in the book of Exodus, and Exodus is, it's called Journey to Freedom, and Exodus is, uh, it's 40 chapters. Now, we just completed, in eight weeks, the study of Revelation, which is 22 chapters, and that was challenging, to get through 22 chapters in eight weeks. This is gonna be an incredible challenge, to cover 40 chapters in eight weeks, And uh, but last week, Kyle preached, did an amazing, amazing job. If you have not listened to that message, go back and listen to that message, just a fantastic message. And Kyle covered the whole Old Testament in one sermon. And so I figure if Kyle can cover the whole Old Testament in one sermon, we can get through Exodus in eight weeks. And so we're gonna do that. My, my strategy is this, I'm gonna take the first seven weeks on chapter one, Kyle's gonna take the last 39 <laughs> chapters at the end, wrap it up, do a fantastic job. So Exodus, the book of Exodus is all about freedom. Some of you know, uh, Mary Callie was talking about Exodus today as she was leading into the song. It's all about freedom, it's about God who reveals himself as the God who rescues, the God who sets free, the God who redeems, all of that, the one who saves. But Exodus is also kind of a look at the life of Moses and Moses' life and how Moses comes on the scene, how God uses Moses to bring about his freedom, bring about this freedom. And as Exodus begins, we get this historical background of everything that has taken place that leads up to Exodus. Like, you you can't really start Exodus without a historical perspective on what leads up to Exodus. And the writer of Exodus kind of gives us that historical perspective right at the beginning. This is how Exodus starts. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous in Egypt. Like they were flourishing in Egypt so much so that the land was filled with them. So the descendants of Joseph, the descendants of Jacob, they come down to Egypt, and they flourish in every way. They flourish socially, they flourish uh, economically, they flourish numerically, they flourish in every way. In fact, they become so powerful numerically, economically, socially, and all of that, they maintain such a strong presence of cultural identity that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh is threatened by their presence. So this is what he does, look at verse nine. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become so much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join with our enemies, fight against us, leave the country. So they put slave masters over them. That was Pharaoh's response to being threatened By the Israelites, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they were oppressed, the more they flourished, and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly that made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields, all kinds of hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh turns the Israelites into slaves. He works them uh, mercilessly. Now the word that's translated there as work, this is is really important in understanding the book of Exodus. The word that's translated as work in English is the Hebrew word avidah. And Avada, it, it doesn't just mean to work. It doesn't mean to work in the sense that we talk about going to work and having a job and working and all of that. It's not the way that we think about work. It means to serve. It means to really, it means to worship. It means to give your life in complete and total devotion to something or to someone. And this points to one of the main themes that runs throughout the whole book of Exodus. It's, it's not just the idea of being set free, like when we think about Exodus, we go, okay, Exodus was about being set free, it's about getting out of Egypt, it's about be going out of Egypt, it's about the exit, all of that, yes, all of that is true. But it's not just about being set free from being forced to Avada. like that's the kind of set free that we talk about, is that it's being set free to, to not be forced to Avada. It's not being set be, not just being set free to not being forced to serve someone or being forced to worship someone or being forced to give your complete and total devotion to someone. That's part of it. That's kind of the first half of it. It's also the idea that if you avada, if you serve, if you worship, if you give your complete and total attention to anything or anyone other than God You become a slave to whatever or whoever that is. Now, you can be forced to Avedah. You can be forced to become a slave, like the Israelites were forced to become the slaves of Pharaoh, like millions of people throughout history, including our own country, have been brutally forced into slavery. But you can also choose to Avedah. You can choose to serve, to worship, to give yourself totally, completely to someone or something other than God, like your career or a relationship or the pursuit of success or money or acknowledgement or fame or destructive habit or whatever it is, anything other than God that you need, anything other than God that you have to have to feel good about yourself, to feel good about your life, eventually enslaves you. Your heart becomes chained to whatever that is. Some of you who grew up in church, or uh, who have at least seen a Hollywood version of the story of Moses, which probably a lot of you have seen that, are probably familiar with the story of Moses confronting Pharaoh and saying what? Let my people go. Like, like Moses confronted Charlton Heston was the best at this, and uh, for some of you, most of you here, Google that. It's in the History Channel, and uh, you you don't find who Charles Esten is. But he was awesome, right? Did the movie, and and uh, and he comes to Pharaoh, and he says, "Let my people go." But that's not actually what Moses says. That's the Twitter version of what Moses said. Like Moses did not just go to Pharaoh and said, "Let my people go." That what he what he actually says, and he says it nine or ten times. And we're gonna be looking at that in a couple of weeks. He says, let my people go that they might serve me. Let my people go that they might worship me. Let my people go that they might avida me. Let my people go that they might give their lives to me. The whole point of Exodus is that real freedom is not just about not being forced to Avedah. It's not just about not having a master over you or a Lord over you. Real freedom is about giving your Avidah to God. It's about serving the living God. It's it's allowing God to be your master. It's about allowing God to be your Lord. It's being so absolutely astounded by the beauty of God and the glory of God and the presence of God that you bow down and worship him. That your avidah is devoted to him. Moses doesn't say let my people go that they might live their lives the way they want to live their lives. He says let my people go that they might worship me. And that's why, is the thing about Exodus. So the first half of Exodus is the movie stuff. The first half of Exodus is the fireworks, it's the, it's the miracles, it's the Red Sea parting, it's the, it's the provision of man, it's the provision of water, it's chariots chasing after the Israelites and, and being caught, and I mean like the first, it's the plagues, it's all the movie stuff. But you know what the last half of Exodus is all about? In fact, more is devoted to this than all of the kind of movie stuff. The last half of Exodus is this mind-numbing description of how to build the tabernacle. Like, what to put on the doors, and what to put this, and the furniture to put here, and put the curtains here. Like, the last half is about how do you build the tabernacle? Like, that's what the last half of it is all about. It's filled with this stuff that would never make it in to any movie. And if it did, I would never go watch it. Why is that? Because the point of Exodus is that the way that you experience freedom, true freedom, is through worship. Like, that's the way you experience true freedom. The way you experience true freedom is is by giving your complete and total devotion to the living God. That's why Exodus starts with a people enslaved and it ends with a people in worship. Exodus starts with people being forced to worship Pharaoh and it ends with people worshiping God. Like that's the journey of Exodus. So many of the things being debated in our culture today are really about how you define freedom. Now, we never say that. We never enter into these cultural discussions that we're having, cultural debates we're having, and say, well, that's all about how you define freedom. No, no, like the way in which we frame the cultural discussion grows out of our idea of what freedom is and what freedom looks like. Like We never talk about that. We never get into these discussions and say, Tell me like what your definition of freedom is. Like we never get to that point, but all of us have a definition of freedom. We have an idea of what freedom is, what freedom looks like, and all of the things that are debated in our culture are really about how you define freedom. Because if freedom is just about being able to do what you want to do, what you want to do with your body, what you want to do sexually, what you want to do with your money, what you want to do with your talents, what you want to do with your gifts, whatever it is, then that's the lens through which you will look at every issue that we're talking about in culture today. But the point of Exodus is that that kind of freedom doesn't actually set you free. That kind of freedom actually enslaves you. In fact, many times the greatest barrier to freedom is freedom, think about that. Sometimes the greatest barrier to freedom is freedom, Os Guinness in his book A Free People's Suicide says it this way, freedom always faces a fundamental moral challenge. Freedom requires order and therefore restraint. Yet the only restraint that does not contradict freedom is self-restraint, which is the very thing that freedom undermines when it flourishes. Thus, the heart of the problem of freedom is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem of freedom is the problem of the heart. And you see that lived out over and over again in Exodus. Even the Israelites, even after the Israelites are set free from the slavery of Egypt. Even after the first part of the book, they're out of Egypt, go through the Red Sea, all the stuff that we're gonna talk about, God provides, even they're they're free. From Egyptian slavery, even after they're set free from Evi- Egyptian slavery, like the story does it in there, because there's some more freedom that needs to be experienced. They keep enslaving themselves with their newfound freedom. So they get out of Egypt, but then they enslave themselves with the newfound freedom that they've experienced, and God is constantly at work setting them free, not just from Egypt, but from themselves. Now, sometimes the Israelites can see God setting them free. It's really clear. We'll look at stories that talk about that. But sometimes God is at work behind the scenes. And that's what you see in chapters one and two. What's interesting about chapters one and two is that God is barely mentioned in chapters one and two. It's not till you get to, I think it's chapter two, verse 17. It's near the end of the chapter that God is mentioned for the first time. And then he's mentioned in verse 20, and that's it. Like God is just only mentioned twice in the first two chapters of Exodus. Now, we don't know whether that's intentional on the part of the author, uh, but whether it is or not, it's certainly symbolic because chapters one and two are all about how things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse for the Israelites and God doesn't seem to be anywhere to be found. Like it's like, where is the God of Abraham? (laughs) Where is the God that provided for us? Where is the God that brought us? It's like, where is that God? And basically, four things happen in chapters one and two. First, Pharaoh decides to enslave the people. That's the first thing. Then secondly, when that doesn't accomplish what he hoped it would accomplish, Pharaoh tries to enlist two Hebrew midwives to help him kill all of the male Hebrew children. This is what we're told in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, those whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God, did not do what the king of Egypt, think how bold that decision was, that they did not do what the king of Egypt was requiring them to do. They let the boys live. So that's the second thing that happens. So he tries to enslave them, that doesn't work. He tries to get the midwives kind of um, behind the scenes to kind of take care of this massacre, this genocide of all the Hebrew male children, infants. And when that doesn't work, then he issues this decree. When Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he basically, after it doesn't work to kind of do it in a clandestine way, he just says to everyone, apparently the Israelites, the Egyptians, whoever it was, like, this is what I want. Like, I'm not trying to hide my agenda anymore. My agenda is, I want to wipe these folks out, and if I can get rid of the male children that in that culture, that will probably kind of cause an assimilation to take place. It's not taking place now, so we just want to kill all of these new children, So things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse for the Israelites. And then fourthly, the one person who everyone kind of thinks might be able to do something about all of this evil, Moses, who has survived this genocide because of the cleverness of his mom, has been raised in Pharaoh's home with unlimited access to power and influence and just unfair access to all of that, Moses, royally, no pun intended, screws up. And this is what we're told, Exodus 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, and glancing this way and that to make sure no one was watching. He killed the Egyptian, hit him in the sand, Thought, thought he'd gotten away with it, but no one he saw it. Then next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting and he asked the one in the wrong, hey, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me the way that you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what must I do? Uh, what must I, uh, what did I, what I did must have become known. Then Pharaoh Heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went and lived in Midian where he sat down by a well. So now, Moses is completely cut off from power. Pharaoh's trying to kill him, he's lost the respect of his own people, they don't trust him anymore, the Israelites are still enslaved, they're still reeling from all of the atrocities that they have experienced, and all of this has gone on for years. In fact, that's one of the things you have to realize when you read chapters one and two of Exodus is that it is that doesn't just cover like a few years, it covers like years and years and years. Generations, generations are, are dealt with in, in Exodus one and two. This has been going on for a very long time and the people of Israel are wondering like, where is God? Where is God in all of this that we are experiencing, how could God abandon us? How could God turn his back on us? How could God not be here? This is generation and generation and generation, like where is God? But even though they can't see God and they can't see what he's doing, God is at work. In fact, God takes every bad thing that has happened to the Israelites and he uses it for good. Everything that Pharaoh does to keep the people enslaved, God uses it in a way that leads to their freedom. It's like Judo God, right? It's like everything that Pharaoh does is, oh, this will keep them enslaved. God just like turns it into the opposite and uses it to set them free, uses it to redeem this, just uses it to accomplish his mission in the world. So let me just go down through some of the things that happened, right? The enslaving of the Israelites doesn't destroy their cultural identity. God uses it actually to strengthen their cultural identity. Pharaoh's evil mandate to kill all the male Hebrew infants that leads, it's that that leads to Moses being raised in Pharaoh's house where he gets the best education, the best training, the best military training, and he's equipped to lead the people of Israel. God even uses Moses' arrogance, his stupidity, his explosive anger because that becomes the thing that sends Moses into the desert where Moses grows in wisdom and humility and patience. Of course, all of that as we read it now, right? 2021, we look back on that. All of that is so clear. Like, oh, now we look back, oh, look at what God did. Like, this was happening, and then God took it, he flipped it, and this happened, and this was happening, and God flipped it, and then this, like, that's so clear to us now, because we're looking at all this through the lens of history. But while they were going through it, the Israelites couldn't see all of that. And when we are going through it, like, when we are going through really, really difficult stuff, we can't usually see it either. God is at work, God is always at work, even when we can't see it. all of that, but often in ways that we can't see, often in ways that we can't understand. Now, let me do, I just wanna spend the rest of the time talking real quickly about how that should impact us in the way that we live our lives and the way we relate to each other, right? One, it should cause us to slow down and take a breath. Just slow down, take a breath, and not get in a rush to try to figure out all the ways that God is at work in the midst of really difficult times. Like we want to figure that out in a second. Like we want, especially those who have been raised in the church and we know that God is at work and we sing the songs about God is work, All that we go, okay, I, I want to I wanna know what it is that God is doing. And that's bad enough when we kind of do it with our own stuff. Like we're in the midst of stuff, we say, okay, I gotta figure out what is God doing here, what is God, what's God's plan, how's God using this, how's God's doing this, like all of that. It's even worse when we do it with the people that we love, like the people in our lives. Like when some really awful thing is going on in someone's life, um, and, and, and it's 12 seconds into the crisis, or some loss, or whatever it is, and we try to tell them all the ways that God Is using this or is going to use this now here's here's why that's not an awesome idea right because the reality is that we don't know all the ways that God is at work so it's better to take a posture of humility here it's better to embrace the reality that you may not have the ways of God all figured out I know some of us are really close like we really, we, we're convinced we're really, really close, especially when you're 120 years old, right? Like you're really close. Oh, I really am close in having the ways of God figured out. But the Bible says that God's ways are just a little bit higher than our ways. That we don't do a really great job being able to really fully, completely understand what God is doing. So yes, give God the glory in the midst of difficult times, hard times, experiences of law, whatever, give God the glory for the ways in which you do see him redeeming that, the ways in which you do see him at work, give him the glory, but embrace the reality that there is more to the story than what you can see. Remember, chapters one and two of Exodus covers years and years and years. Covers way more than any one person's lifetime. Which just means that even in our lifetime, we may not see all of the ways that God is at work in the midst of the stuff that we go through. That it may be something, like seeing that, may be something for the next generation to see. Or it may be something for the generation after that to see. Oh, look, look, there was something that God was doing in that that in the midst of it, we didn't see. Maybe even the next generation doesn't see. But the next generation, I'm like, maybe even this side of heaven. No generation sees it until we are face to face with the Lord. Like not everything that God is doing is going to be known to us in the moment. That's the first thing. So take a breath, rejoice in where we see God working and redeeming, and realize there's more to the story. There's more to the picture. Second thing is this, don't judge yourself, don't judge others when they have what I would call a what is God doing moment. You know what those are, right? A what is God doing moment. I, I've had a lot of what is God doing moments in my life. And you probably have as well, if you're honest with yourself. In fact, you may be having one of those right now, like what is God doing? doing in the midst of this painful thing, this awful thing, this terrible thing? Like, what is God doing in the midst of that? And that's okay. Like, we don't have to beat ourselves up over to that. We don't have to beat others up because they're having a what is God doing moment. Most of the time, this is so important, most of the time in the midst of pain, the what is God doing question is not a question of the head, it's a question of the heart. And you say, well, no, maybe it is a question. No, it's not. If it was a question of the head, we wouldn't wait until we get cancer or someone we love get cancer or we experience a loss or we experience a devastating relational breakup. We wouldn't wait until we're in the middle of that moment to ask the question because those things are going on in the world every moment of every day. So the reason we ask that question in the moment when we find out what's going on in our body or we experience loss or we experience something that affects us is because it's not a question so much of the head in that moment, it's a question of the heart. That's why when we're the ones in pain, we're not looking for a discourse on the theology of suffering. It's called theodicy. Like I took a class in seminary on Theodicy. There's lots of books written on theodicy. It's the theology of suffering. But when you're in the midst of pain. You are not looking for a discourse on the theology of suffering. That may come late. That may come later. Like maybe after you're through that moment and you're now looking back, say, I wanna look at this through a broader lens and kind of, yeah, not just about my experience, but about the experience of the world and I wanna understand it better. That may come later. But when we're in the midst of pain, you know what we're looking for? We're looking for a space to lament. We're looking for a space to cry out to God and say, God, what are you doing here? Like, where are you? And this is not fair, and this is not right, and I shouldn't be going through this. My friends shouldn't be going through this. My spouse, my kids, they should not be. We need a space to lament and cry out. And that's what God gives us. Like that's what the Psalms, half of the Psalms are all about. It's about David lamenting. It's about David crying out and saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? This is not right. This is not fair. This should not be happening. We're just looking for space, space. And if God gives us space, we should give each other space. That doesn't mean that we don't know deep down inside. When someone says, where is God in the midst of that, that doesn't mean that deep down inside they don't know that God is at work. It just means that we don't feel it right now. We need the space to express what was going on in our heart right now. And if God gives us that space, we should give each other that space. And then thirdly, it should give us the confidence to know that God is not the source, of evil, but God can use evil. The Bible is clear that God does not take delight in our suffering. God does not take delight, he did not take delight in what was happening to the Israelites. He was not the source of their enslavement. He was not the source of the genocide that they experienced. He was not the source of Moses having to flee into the desert. God did not cause any of that, but He used folks. He used all of it. All of it was leading somewhere. God used the horrific circumstances that led to Moses growing up in Pharaoh's house to train, equip, and position him. God uses Moses' destructive display of anger and and uh, and, and impetuousness to humble Moses. And as we'll see next week, God uses. Moses' time in the desert to clarify his calling and, and, and he has this encounter with God through this burning bush that would recalibrate the trajectory of his life. Like God uses all of that. God did not, think about this. God did not waste one experience in Moses' life. Good experiences, bad experiences. God did not waste one experience. There was not one thing that Moses did or that was done to him that God was not able to use. Doesn't mean that all those things were good. They were not. Some of them are evil and you need to call evil evil. It does not justify the sinful things that Moses did. Like Moses could not get to a point in his life and say, well, God used that, so it must not have been that bad. No, it was bad. Like you killed someone. That was bad. That was sinful. That was horrible. The fact that God can redeem it doesn't change the fact that it was bad. So it doesn't justify the sinful things that Moses did. It doesn't justify the sinful things that were done to him and to his people. Those were evil. Slavery is evil. Enslaving someone else is evil. It doesn't justify those in any way. It just means that God can redeem anything and anyone. If God can redeem the nailing of his son on a cross, the worst evil that has happened in the history of humanity, the nailing of the son of God on the cross, if God can redeem that, if God can redeem that and use it to bring salvation to the world, use it to bring salvation to us, then he can use you. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, God can use you. But we have to be willing to allow God to redeem all of those things. You have to be willing to allow God to redeem you. You know who the heroes of chapters one and two in Exodus are, it's not Moses. That kind of comes later. A thing, but the, chapter, the heroes of chapter one and two are the most unlikeliest of heroes that you perhaps could imagine given that culture. It's the two Hebrew midwives who courageously refuse to carry out Pharaoh's evil plan at the risk of their own lives. Who stand up and obey God rather than obeying the powers that be. Who practice civil disobedience in the face of evil and injustice. They're two of the heroes of chapters one and two. It's Moses' mother who made sure that her son was protected and made it possible for him, for God to do great things. Like everything that happened in Moses' life is because of a mom that put him in the position of being able to be used by God, who changed the trajectory of her son's life. That's one of the heroes of chapter one and two. It's Pharaoh's daughter, a religious outsider, someone who hasn't even connected all the dots, right? God can use anything and anyone. It's Pharaoh's daughter who boldly takes Moses in. Think about that. Against the wishes of her father, who is the king, who boldly takes Moses in and is used by God to accomplish his plan. So let me just ask you a question to wrap this up. What experiences in your life does God need to redeem? Like maybe it's something that you have done, maybe it's something that someone has done to you. Maybe it's a loss, maybe it's a breakup. Maybe it's just some painful experience that you have gone through. Maybe it's a series of painful experiences that you just seem to be going through over and over and over again. But God wants to redeem it. Whatever it is, don't waste it. See, that's the thing. This redeeming God is a God who when we allow him to takes everything, 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 and will not allow it to be wasted, will not allow it to just be shoved under the rug, will not allow it to just be something we have to get past. He uses it, he redeems it. And for some of you, the thing maybe that God needs to redeem is you, just you that he wants you to experience his forgiveness. He wants you to experience his grace. He he wants you to be set free to live the life that he created you to live. And you are not yet living the life that God created you to live and he wants to set you free to do that. And so maybe today is the day of Exodus for you. Maybe today is the day of escape for you. Maybe today is the day that God sets you free. God, we are so thankful. For the perspective, really in many respects, what we read through scripture is just the opportunity to look at stories that have been repeated over and over again in world history and that, in many cases have been repeated in our own lives. But to look at it through the lens of the gospel and look at it through the lens of time and to see in a fresh way how you are always at work even when we cannot see that. Redeeming, restoring, forgiving, positioning us for something better, preparing us for freedom. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. And we pray that whatever it is that you wanna redeem in our life, that we would give you the permission to redeem it. And if it's us that need to be redeemed, we pray that today would be the day of redemption. Today would be the day of escape. That we would accept what you have done for us on the cross. In the name of Christ, we pray.